From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He spent more than 30 years in solitary confinement. He was stripped to his boxer shorts. He was in a cell the size of a king mattress. Flights were on 24 hours a day, and he had absolutely, absolutely no contact with the outside world. A new book raises questions about what to do with people in prison deemed dangerous and whether isolation is constitutional. Then, growing up, money just wasn't discussed. We've never talked about saving for the future or saving for when you're old and you can't do it anymore. Our parents' retirement plan is us. Now, Gisette Almamar is a financial planner, one of two who'll join us to discuss some basics of savings and retirement. And a graduate in Greeley who has focused on semesters and trimesters. If you're looking for information on how to support Colorado Public Radio through a gift, donation, or sponsorship, or if you need to update or change your membership details, you can find an answer on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Two men who both spent decades in solitary confinement, virtually no direct contact with the outside world. Their crimes were, by all accounts, heinous. Each killed a prison guard and other men incarcerated with them. A new book, No Human Contact, traces their childhoods, their crimes, and their punishment. The book also explains why their actions led to the construction of the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with the author Pete Early, a warning you may find some of what's described disturbing. Let's start with Tommy Silverstein, whose crimes and punishment are the main focus of your book. He spent 36 years in what was essentially isolation. Talk about his early life and how he first ended up in prison. Tommy was born into a very violent family in California. His father, Thomas Conway, and his mother, Virginia, were both very violent people. Uh, They both wanted to be actor and actress in Hollywood, and instead they ended up on the tabloids. She tried to run him over with a car at one point, knocking him 15 feet in the air and backing up and only stopped when pedestrians started yelling at her. He beat her unconscious several times. He eventually fled while Tommy was just two years old and was arrested in Oklahoma for uh, robberies. Uh, She went on and married Sid Silverstein, who adopted Tommy. People often wonder why someone who was in a prison gang that's known as a white supremacist gang was named Silverstein, but his original name was Conway. He ended up getting in all kinds of trouble when he was young, started using drugs. And then when his father got out and returned to Colorado from an Oklahoma prison, they began robbing banks together. They went through a bunch of youth facilities, ended up at San Quentin uh, for bank robbery with his father and his uncle. And that's where he first started life in prison. And as a young kid, he was actually also abused by his mother. Absolutely. And it was terrible abuse. This is a woman who, when he was five years old, he was wetting the bed and she forced him to drink his own urine and then beat him repeatedly with an extension cord. Another time he was so angry at her, she made him clean up after her chihuahua and he went out and hanged the dog and then right before it died he rescued it 
I mean, this was the kind of environment he was in growing up. Just awful, awful situations. Horrible childhood by all accounts. What did Silverstein do in prison that landed him in isolation? It's dubbed No Human Contact, also the title of your book. Well, he entered the prison system in the 70s in San Quentin, and this was really a crucial and important time. Uh, He was only 19 at the time he entered it. But in the 1975 in San Quentin, it was the middle of what was known in prison culture as the race wars. It was a situation where gangs were finally emerging. Before that, prisons were dominated by a strong convict. And convict's main focus was how to escape. Now you had prison gangs. And in San Quentin, uh, the 60s Black Power movement uh, was emerging in the prisons, the riots, all that stuff. And the cells actually would open up and blacks and whites would go after each other. It didn't matter if you even knew the person trying to stab. And it was in that culture that Silverstein, who is white, uh, got to know the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood, which today is one of the most notorious white supremacy prison gangs. He went from there, after he did his time in state prison, he went to Leavenworth, the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, where he immediately was associated with the same folks. And there was a murder there. He was accused of that murder, a stabbing. That charge was later thrown out by the courts. But by that time, he'd been sent to the U.S. Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. Now, that had replaced Alcatraz as the home of the worst and the worst. And uh, he was accused and did kill two Black inmates there. And then ultimately, he murdered a correctional officer. Because he had murdered a correctional officer and there was no death penalty, and he had been accused of killing three people before that, the Bureau of Prisons said, how can we keep our people safe? This guy has no regard for human life. So we have to create a new punishment. And it was called no human contact. For the first nine months, Silverstein was sent to a prison in an isolation cell away from everyone else in Atlanta. He was stripped to his boxer shorts. That's all he had to wear. He was in a cell the size of a king mattress. It was actually a big steel-like container. The walls were painted white. Lights were on 24 hours a day. And he had absolutely, absolutely no contact with the outside world. And the guards who had to feed him out of respect for their dead comrades wouldn't talk to him. So he had no mail, no letters, no radio, nothing. He was sealed away. And the Bureau of Prisons officials told me they'd hoped that he would end his own life, but he didn't. And then they decided after nine months that they needed to give him a few more privileges, uh, let him have mail, let him have occasional phone calls, let him have art supplies. And it wasn't done out of kindness. It was done because you can't control someone if you take everything away. People would hand him a food tray and say, give it back. And he'd say, no, what are you going to do? So this was a crucial period in his life in this isolation that literally served as kind of a primer for the next 36 years. Lights are on all night long. Was he ever able to get out of that cell for a shower or exercise? He was taken out occasionally for a shower, but again, it was right next to another a cell. But no, to my knowledge, he wasn't. And those lights stayed on for many, 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 many years. When I met him in 1988, 
he had the lights on 24 hours and he was in a dungeon cell in the bottom of Leavenworth and he only had cold water, had a shower in his cell. And when I mentioned that to prison officials, they said, oh, well, we didn't know that and and then turned the hot water on. But there was a telephone outside his cell and they would call it up at all hours. This was used for the correctional officers to use when they were watching him. And they'd call it all hours to keep him awake. And there was a camera above his toilet and they would mess with his food. I mean, this guy, and uh, I'm not justifying anything he did, but the point was to make his life as possibly miserable as possible. I want to get to the question of what you do with an extremely dangerous prisoner or what appears to be an extremely dangerous person in prison. I just want to talk briefly about Clayton Fountain. He was another man you profiled in your book. Tell us a little bit about how he landed in prison and then how he landed in isolation. Well, Clayton Fountain had a similar, very disturbing childhood. His father used to beat him. He was a former uh, Vietnam and Korean veteran. He wanted to create a warrior So at one point, he took bags of pig's blood and put it in a mannequin and had Clayton stabbing it to see what it was like to get used to stabbing things with blood in them. He'd send him out into the woods behind their home in uh, the south and hunt him down and beat him if he caught him. His mother at one point shot him in the leg with a twenty-two, And like Silverstein, he became a young man who was in the juvenile justice system. He ended up going to the Marines, and it really was getting him set straight. He was doing really well. And then in 1972, he ran into a sergeant who was really a tough guy. And they literally started solving their problems by fistfights. And Clayton Fountain was losing them left and right. He fell in love with a prostitute. She got pregnant in the Philippines when the sergeant made fun of him. And they had another fight and beating badly. Clayton, uh, went and shot him with a shotgun, killed him, ended up going into the disciplinary barracks in Leavenworth, which is separate from the federal prison, and he couldn't be controlled. So he ended up in Marion at the same time, a little before Silverstein. Silverstein murdered an officer named Merle Klutz in October 1983, and Clayton Fountain and Silverstein were in the same unit in the same tier in the same cell block. And a few hours after Silverstein murdered Officer Klutz, he attacked uh, three officers and ended up murdering an officer that very afternoon. So this is what propelled the Bureau of Prisons to say, not only what do we do with these people who have committed multiple murders, Clayton uh, Fountain had uh, murdered two uh, black people along with Silverstein, uh, assisted him in murdering people. So, I mean... Clayton Fountain had five bodies. Silverstein had four bodies. What are you going to do with people like this? And so they put him under similar no human contact situations at the medical center in Springfield, where he also was in isolation. The answer federal officials had to this was to build, you say in the book, the federal supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. How do you connect their crimes, their punishment to the building of Supermax? Well, what happened with Silverstein and also with Fountain was that Norm Carlson, the head of the Bureau of Prisons, a wonderful guy, said, look, we got to do something. 
And so he came up with no human contact. He came up with the idea of returning to total isolation, solitary confinement for the so-called worst of the worst. And he used the murders they committed to justify building the first supermax in Florence, Colorado. And 40 states began emulating that after that. The cells are concrete. And when you enter the place, you have to go down in a tunnel. You get the illusion that you're actually underground because the only light is a small window. And inmates are locked in there 23 hours a day. They have a bar separating them from a little entry area and a steel door. And uh, the worst uh, offenders are kept in what's called range 13, which is where Silverstein eventually ended up. And that is total isolation, much like what he faced when I met him in Leavenworth. And we began our 32-year relationship corresponding and exchanging letters and talking where you're totally isolated. You can't hear other inmates. You can't yell to other inmates. And you're in the cell 23 hours, often longer than that, because uh, they don't get around to giving you any recreation. And that was his life. Is there an alternative to this kind of housing for people like Silverstein and Fountain? Well, that's, uh, of course, the big question. I think there's two answers to that. First is you need to look at what led them to becoming the way they are. And uh, you can't do much about their childhood, but you can look at the juvenile justice system and the situation in San Quentin where they're thrown into the race wars and look at the Bureau's own policies. If one of the reasons that Silverstein got two murders in uh, Marion, one of them was because the Bureau of Prisons put a known D.C. black gang leader right next to him and uh, knowing that the two of them were going to tangle. So I think you have to look at what led up to this and where were there um, points where you could have intervened and actually helped someone. And that's a, a tough call. What do you do with somebody like this? Well, our answer has been the ADX. And the ADX is the federal supermax prison, I should say, in Colorado. Correct, in Florence, Colorado. Now, most people only spend three years on average in that prison before they work themselves down to a lesser prison and then another one. So that is the alternative we're in right now. It seems to me that the Bureau of Prisons knew they had these folks, uh, whether they really needed to strip them to their underwear and keep the lights on 24 hours a day, that seems a little extreme to me, but that was all about punishment and revenge. So if you can take that out, I think it would serve everyone better because not only do you have uh, people like Silverstein who are going through this, but you have the correctional officers. And as you said, facing the danger, Silverstein in my book, as a drawing that he made of a person behind bars reaching out, a monster reaching out. I mean, you can't kick a dog every day in a cage and then expect it to, to be calm when it comes out. And that was his argument. You really got to know Silverstein, um, developed a relationship with him. But in the book, you imply that he never took full responsibility for what he did. Do you think he had remorse? Could he have been rehabilitated? Well, there's two things. At one point, Silverstein's in Atlanta when the Cubans, uh, there's a riot there, a notorious riot in the 80s. 
and he's free. And the Bureau of Prisons actually puts out a shoot on site order against him because they think he's so dangerous. But he actually didn't hurt any of the correctional officers. He wanted to prove to them that he was nonviolent, uh, that the, the reason why he had murdered a correctional officer, in his words, was the officer was torturing him, messing with his mail, messing with his paintings. He had great remorse about being locked up in isolation. He, like everyone else, and I knew him really well, felt that, you know, he was justified in what he had done. Folks that he had killed in Marion, he felt were a threat against him and would have murdered him if he had not acted out. And he felt justified in his own mind because in this isolation unit inside Marion, in the control unit, you had an officer who they were supposed to rotate every three months. He was kept there for three years because he was as tough as the inmates and they batted heads. And every day it fed on Silverstein that this officer was picking on him, not letting him get his mail on time, messing with his food. Now, that was never proven, but in Silverstein's mind, that was what was going on. It was torture and to the point that he felt justified in killing this man. Now, did he ever feel sorry about that? Yes, he felt sorry about it. And he did apologize to the family and he did say he regretted it. But he also felt that it was justified. So it was that uh, different combination. I must say, though, that Silverstein, despite years in isolation, found a purpose in life. And that was a side of him that I saw that most people did not see. He had loved ones. He had a woman who fell in love with him, who wanted to marry him. He was a skilled artist. And he wrote a lot about the Bureau of Prisons and how he was being treated. And what's interesting is that he survived largely on hating the institution and the BOP. He was not going to let them break him. Clayton Fountain went the other route. He became super religious and actually had been accepted in an order of the Trappist monks and was going to be allowed to wear a monk hood and et cetera in his isolation cell. So it was an interesting contrast between someone who was thriving over hate, uh, not going to be broken, and someone who found Jesus and uh, liked the isolation of being a monk. Some might say that the fact that you developed a relationship with Silverstein might make you overly sympathetic to him. And I wonder about the ethics of being able to offer readers a balanced view. Well, I think the way you handle that is, look, if you're a reporter, your best tool is to getting to know someone so well that they reveal themselves to you. And then you have to go back and present that. Now, I was fortunate in this and that I was helping Silverstein write his memoirs. Unfortunately, they were unfinished. So in this book, No Human Contact, what I tried to do was use as many of his words and not mine. And I never have approved of what he did. But I also wanted people to understand the world he lived in. You know, I had done an earlier book is how I met Silverstein and 87 to 89. I was granted as a reporter free access to the penitentiary in Livermore, Kansas. And that's where I first met him. And he was in that book. And he said, you're an outsider. You come in and you talk about what a four-point restraint is. And that's when officers strip someone down and chain each of their limbs to a bed, concrete slab, as punishment. 
And he said, then you described that, but I lived it. And then he describes in his own words in the book what it's like to be chained to a concrete slab, not being able to move, not being able to use the bathroom, to defecate on yourself, to having mice run through your cells, not knowing if they're going to attack you, and just hours and hours and hours of being in this situation. And so I don't give my opinion, actually, of Silverstein in this book. I let him tell his own story and try to balance that with other reporting about the race wars and Norm Carlson, who I greatly admired, and the building of this ADX. In general, not necessarily related to Silverstein, is it fair to say you've become an advocate of sorts for people who are in isolation in prisons? I'm not sure that, you know, you have 332 people at the ADX and uh, Supermax there in Florence. And I do believe there's a certain amount of if you build it, they will come. How many of those people really do need to be held in isolation? You know, you have your gang leaders, you have your notorious ones, but you also had, and my book documents, a heroic attorney in Denver, Ed Aro, who uh, went down there and found horrific cases of people with mental illnesses being locked up in the ADX. And one horrible case of a guy who uh, didn't follow the orders and get at the back wall when they were putting his food tray through so they wouldn't feed him. He became so weak. He had schizophrenia. He had feces all over his cell. And their response was to put sandbags outside the cell door to keep the odor from coming out. And this is what Uh, You'd have to have a sociologist explore, but the inhumanity becomes acceptable. And that affects not only the inmates, but also the correctional officers. When you can walk away with somebody who's naked, lying on the floor in his own feces, who hasn't eaten for three days and not feel any obligation to do something, that is uh, hard on the correctional officers and their mentality as much as the person who's laying on that floor. Do you think this kind of isolation is cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of the U.S. Constitution? I think that we need to rethink solitary confinement and look at ways that we might be able to separate these folks from the general population that are not as draconian as certainly what Silverstein faced. I would think that long-term isolation has been uh, shown to be, in my view, you know, detrimental to your mental health. And the courts haven't ruled that. Your Denver court uh, refused to actually look at that question and instead focused on Silverstein when he sued them. They took the coward's way out and said, oh, we're not going to rule on solitary confinement. But you asked me my opinion. Yes, I think that long-term solitary confinement, if you needed it for emergencies to isolate someone is one thing, but I think long-term is cruel. You said earlier that the federal supermax was then responsible for states building their own supermax prisons. Colorado housed hundreds of people in isolation until the former head of the state's prison spent a night at the state supermax. He wrote about how awful it was in an op-ed. Now Colorado has reduced that number. And I just wonder if other states and the federal government are following suit. No, I don't think so. It's very hard to close these places down once a state uses them, because then it becomes a convenient way to just get rid of troublesome inmates. So I have not seen any national trend, despite 
a number of groups that have argued that solitary confinement is cruel and unusual. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Silverstein and the Denver Law Project there filed a class action suit to end solitary confinement, and it had the National Alliance of Mental Illness and others join in it. But your appeals court out there, again, took the coward's way out. They said, well, we're not going to rule on solitary confinement. Instead, we're just going to look at Silverstein. And they balked and said, well, we really don't know. The guy hasn't done anything for 36 years. But if we, uh, the Bureau of Prisons tells us he's dangerous. And so it's up to the Bureau of Prisons to deal with him the way they think is best. Pete, thanks so much for talking to us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for bringing up these important issues. Pete Early, speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. He's a reporter and author of several books, including No Human Contact, about isolation in prison. Still to come, the mixed emotions that come along with managing money, which is why some people don't. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's a surprising place in the Southwest that shows us how we can save water in cities. Vegas is excess, so they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. But that is just not the case here. On the new episode of Parched from CPR News, see how America's playground is changing to adapt to a drier Colorado River. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. If you don't have a retirement account, the state treasurer, Dave Young, wants to help you set one up. Right now, we know that there are a million people here in the state of Colorado that aren't accumulating any savings and won't be sustainable in retirement on Social Security alone. Starting this spring, if you work for a company that doesn't offer retirement accounts, you'll see money taken out of your paycheck and put into a retirement account that the state is setting up for you. You can opt out, but the treasurer's office hopes you stick with it. We can have people have a sustainable and dignified retirement using all of their own resources if we can just help them make that start. You heard him say all their own resources. That's because the treasurer's office hopes this will mean when people retire, they won't need to rely as much on social services funded by taxpayers. Like Medicaid as well as Medicare, housing support, food security. People that aren't prepared for retirement are going to be accessing safety net services. $18 billion here in the state of Colorado over the next 15 years. Right now, businesses with 15 or more employees must enroll those workers in these retirement savings accounts. Next month, this will expand to smaller companies with five or more workers. The businesses don't contribute to the retirement accounts, but have to do this setup. Now, saving a little money each month isn't just about retirement. You may need it if you get sick or something breaks down. Well, two certified financial planners are here to give you a primer. Gisette Almimar is with Trailwise Financial Partners in Arvada. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And Elena Macy is with Bloom Wealth Advisors in Boulder. Hi, Elena. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. A lot of people may not think financial planning is for them, that they don't have enough money or don't foresee any big changes in their lives. Elena, who is financial planning for? 
Financial planning is for absolutely everyone. I believe anyone, any age, any financial background or financial status would benefit from financial planning and having a plan in place and a saving strategy in place in order to reach their goals and have more options in their future. Gisette, I wonder if you meet people who don't see themselves in savings and in planning and maybe what you tell them. Yeah, I mean, I have definitely met some people, some friends that think that they don't need financial planning, but having a financial plan will help you achieve your short-term and long-term goals. Goals Um, like what? Goals like... Saving for an emergency fund, you know, that will be a short-term goal, a goal to save for a down payment for a house or get out of debt. You know, those could be um, some of the goals that people could have. Those friends who've told you, that's not for me. How do you convince them otherwise? Well, with friends, it's a little bit hard (laughs) (laughs) to like have those conversations with. They don't want to open about money because, I don't know, they could be like, this is so private and I see you so often. That is kind of hard, but in conversations that we could have, I talk about the benefits of having small things like what I already mentioned, emergency fund, you know, or don't get into too much crazy credit card debt because that's not going to be good for you in the future. You touched on something interesting there, which is that friends might feel secretive or private or maybe even a little embarrassed about discussing finances. Do you both run into that with some frequency? Absolutely. Often, actually. And I think a lot of it is people don't look for financial planning help because they're scared of having to actually come to terms with what they have. Hmm. And they might be embarrassed of it if they've, you know, haven't started saving just yet and they don't really want to come to terms with yet or open up to someone else. I mean, is there some denial in that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it can also be how we were raised Some people have parents who never talked about money, who didn't tell them about what money was when they were growing up or how it was, and they just never learned. And so I think it it can be really normal to them not to talk about money Mm. when really they should be. Gisette, does that sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, there is also this misconception that financial planning is only for the wealthy Uh and you need to have all these accounts and have a business or something that you need to talk about. But it's as simple as just to create a budget that you can follow and then just see, okay, where, where do I stand? Like, can I save some money? Am I spending too much eating out? Or am I spending too much in shopping? That is financial planning. It is beginning to get a clearer picture of where your money is going. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe it's on those frappuccinos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. Those add up. Those add up. <laughs> yes, they do. Gisette, I want to focus specifically on Latinas for a moment. Um, statistically, Latinas live longer than people in most other demographics, and they're a source of support for relatives. Yet they earn 57 cents on the dollar that non-Hispanic white men do. They're the most likely not to have a bank account. I wonder if you want to comment on what financial planning means for Latino communities, given your own experience moving here, I think, from Colombia. I am from Colombia, yes. I moved here about 10 years ago. Just like going through that path, I mean, I have a lot of Colombian friends, Latino friends, uh-huh. you know. And I think like something that Elena touched on is that uh, mindset of not talking about money. And that is very true for the Latino community. Like you just don't talk about it. And I think it's because a lot of Latino, the Latino community has that sense of responsibility of taking care of their family members. Mm-hmm. There is also those language barriers 
that makes it very difficult to have access to financial literacy. So that can make it hard. I wonder if your parents talk to you about finances? No. I feel like financial planning in Colombia, it's not a thing. You just work until you can't work anymore, really. They do have some pensions established in Colombia. Some have access to them, some don't. Mm. Um, Kind of social security here. But yeah, we've never talked about saving for the future or saving for when you're old and you can't do it anymore. Our parents' retirement plan is us, like the kids. And then you need to find that balance between taking care of them, that responsibility, and then saving for your own financial future. Taking care of yourself, exactly. (laughs) Do you feel like you're breaking a cycle to some extent in the work you're doing? Yeah, I do. Uh Yes. Helping people understand the importance of saving and the importance of having a plan. It's definitely something that I feel very happy to do. Hmm. It's definitely an accomplishment. Elena Macy, uh, what was your relationship with money as a kid? I love this question, and it's why I'm in this profession. I am not the norm as far as how my house was talking about money. We talked about money all the time growing up, which I know is not the norm. I talk to my friends about it all the time, and I know that's not what they had. But when we would go grocery shopping, my mom would talk to me about how much everything would cost. And my box of cereal that I'd throw in the cart, she'd be say, hey, did you look at what the price tag was on that? Is there a cheaper option? Is there a different option? And we'd talk about the full grocery bill at the end of our trip and know you know, what it costs for our family to live that week on food. I'm really lucky that I had that exposure. And that's really one of the big reasons why I'm in this profession is because I think I was exposed to it really early. And I do think I have a natural ability to manage money and understand our relationships with money. Of course, you could have rebelled, right? And then Absolutely, just, just yes. a debt monster. Yes, but, I yeah. could have. Okay, so the first piece of advice we've heard is get a sense of your spending. Like really look at what the patterns are. What is the next best thing people can do to build wealth, no matter how old they are. Yeah, I would say set some goals. Um, You need to know what you're saving for. So, And and why is that important, having that goal in mind? Is it because it keeps you accountable? It's it's because it keeps you accountable and you can keep track of that. So it's very important, the emotions and behavioral aspect of financial planning, for a financial plan to be successful. A lot of advisors or people that are in this industry don't understand that it's not just about the numbers or being logical about this is what you need to save. It's important to have those goals and keep you motivated by saying like, okay, yes, I reached my goal. And it keeps you accountable and motivated. And of course, if you have something to say yes to, then you have a North Star and you know what to say no to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going on what you said, I think it's so important to have goals into play because when you are making sacrifices to lower your spending, you know what those sacrifices are for. So it's easier to cut back on those frappuccinos Mm. in order to know that, you know, this is for the down payment on my first home. I'm doing this for a reason to be able to reach my goals someday. I wonder if you've run across, I don't know, helpful apps or tools when it comes to squirreling away money. Yeah. To start with the budgeting, there are different resources out there that are free. Uh, One of them is Mint. It's an application that you can download and use on your phone. You connect your cards, you connect your accounts, and you just have everything in one place. So it's easy to track 
where am I at? Okay. You don't have to build a spreadsheet yourself. You don't need to do that. <laughs> you can do it if you want to and you have a lot of time. You can do that too. And then there are a lot of financial calculators out there. You can just like Google that and then it will help you with those goals that you have set. It will help you. Okay, this is how much I need to save to get to this uh-huh. goal over this some period of time. Over a period of time, it will have the option to add in there some interest rates or rates, things like that. I would say don't leave all your money just in a savings account because you need to have that money growing, outpace the inflation. That's where you get a little bit more complicated, where you need to start understanding how to invest, what are stocks, what are mutual funds, all those things. You can start with Vanguard, open a, an account there and use a Roth IRA. Uh-huh. So it is an individual retirement account that you can open at those places like Vanguard, Fidelity, that are free for you to start. You don't have to pay a financial advisor to okay. do that. Yeah, and those are some Yeah, and both Vanguard and, and Fidelity were the two examples that she uses. They do have really great resources on both websites. So I know Fidelity specifically has a whole insights tab that you can look at and read and, and educate yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And it really makes it easy to understand for someone who has never invested before. It can feel yeah. overwhelming, but I know those sites, they do have a lot of resources for you to go to. And they're free. Yes, they're free. Huh. Yeah. You know, you'd go open up like a Roth IRA, as she mentioned, is a really wonderful place to start for people. Be aware of the limitations of it um, as far as your income limitations, but it's a really great place to start saving for retirement. Because that's specifically for retirement. If my car breaks down, that's not something I'm tapping. So why I love talking about a Roth IRA is because a Roth IRA does have some more flexibility. Yes, it is a retirement account. It is for the long term. But there is some flexibility as far as taking out money if, let's say, you need some for a down payment on your first home or for tuition. And then also with the Roth IRA, you can take out any of the contributions you put into it. Not the earnings until you're in retirement, but Ah, any of the contributions. contributions. So it's a good place when people are just starting to invest and they're scared to lock up all their money until retirement. Um, This is a good account that can be kind of like a backup account if you were to need to tap into it. But ideally, you look at it as a long-term account and investment. Do you see women and men each having different needs when it comes to financial planning? Absolutely, yes. I think women have unique needs when it comes to financial planning. And I'll tell you, there's really three reasons why. Um, One of them is women earn less than men. That's been true for a really long time. And actually, it's been shown that it's about a million dollars in a wage gap for men and women over the whole lifetime of their income earning years. A million dollars that we're behind. That is a home and then some. Yes. Yeah. And then also women, um, if they become moms, are typically sometimes having to take time away from work, whether that's short term for a maternity leave or long term, you know, to be a stay at home mom. They're having to step out of the workforce at times or maybe not taking that next step to get promoted. So on top of making less, we are also working less. And like I said, it's very rewarding to be a mom. I'm a mom, but it is true. Um, And then the third reason is women have a longer life expectancy than men. On average, women live longer than men. So we have to plan for a longer longevity. Is there a general like equation for I'm going to live till 90 and I need to have X amount of money? I mean... That's a hard question to answer because it all depends on what you want to spend. 
So, you know, I work with some clients who would be fine spending 50000 a year and retiring at 55. And then I work with other clients who want to retire at 70 and spend 300000 a year. Mm-hmm. So it totally depends as far as the what inputs. you want to spend. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Financial planning is specific to every person. It's very there is personalized. not, yeah, there is not a gold rule or something like that. Yeah. Gisette, you were mentioning Mint. Um, I have seen any number of apps, services that when you spend, allow you to round up a few cents and sock that money away. Have you seen those? Do you like those? Yeah, I have seen those. And and I think like it's a good start. You were talking about how to grow wealth and build wealth, you know? And I think like that has two components. The first one is knowing where you're at, how much can I save? You need to be consistent in order to be able to build wealth. There is also the need to invest strategically Mm. in order for you to build wealth. And if you are seeking someone out, I just want to say that if folks are looking for a professional financial planner, the best thing is to look for a fiduciary. And that means the planner has put your, the client's financial interests above the planner's own. I am curious about another population, and I understand you'll be teaching, I think, a course specifically for LGBTQ folks, Elena. Yeah, uh, their their needs are different. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to just say it. Our needs are different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm actually currently working on a course for women. Um, it's a, called Women and Wealth Workshop, and I'm hoping to turn this in by the end of the year or into early next year into making a workshop for the LGBTQ plus folks. And what's the need um, that you see there? Yeah. So there is a big unique need. I mean, one of it is with the marriage equality in law now, it's not as complicated as it used to be, but we still see a lot of queer folks are choosing not to get married for whatever reasons they that is. And we need to make sure that they are protected from a legal standpoint if you're traveling out of the state. And then from a financial standpoint, too, you know, there's downsides to not being legally married. For example, Social Security. Your spouse, if you're legally married, might be able to get a portion of your Social Security. If you're not legally married, we have to do something different when it comes to retirement planning. And then the area that I work with a lot of queer families is with family planning. If you want to bring a child into this world, it doesn't usually happen on accident with our LGBTQ plus couples. And so that's an area that I help with a lot of planning um, from surrogacy, fertility treatments, adoption. There's a lot of expenses that go around that and expenses that a heterosexual couple doesn't always have to deal with. I mean, sometimes they do, but it's a unique expense and it really takes a lot of planning. Yeah, that goes back to what we were hearing from Chisette, which is what are your goals? And those are all versions of goals. Absolutely. With price yeah. tags. Yeah. And everyone's goal is different. Yes. And, and most goals have price tags. <laughs> okay. She said, I thought maybe we could wrap up by having you reflect on your own journey of learning. What is an aha moment that you had maybe between childhood, young adulthood, and becoming a financial planner? Because you said that this was not baked in to your you know, childhood home. What's an aha moment you've had? For me, it was that behavioral piece of financial planning and the importance of how people see money. We have had clients that have a lot of money saved, millions saved, but they don't want to spend them because they are so afraid that they're going to run out of money. And we tell them, we create a plan, we tell them, you can spend more than what you are spending right now. 
and they are just very afraid of that. So, so fear is an element of this. Yeah, absolutely. There is fear. There is overconfidence. You know, like <laughs> the opposite. The, of what the that opposite was. of it. Um, so understanding all of those and making those feelings feel valid for clients and people, it's important for them to f- see success in mm. life. But it, it's an interesting idea to do a kind of emotional inventory as you plan. Is that? Am I phrasing that right? Yeah, I mean, talking about money is not just talking about money. It's talking about your entire life. Uh, we want to have a, a, a kid or we want to get married. We want to buy a house. And there's so many emotions around all of that. Yeah. So we are also kind of like those mediators sometimes between like family members. You know, they, they don't see money the same. So trying to... Negotiate um, that. Kind of like, yeah, being that in the middle person, it's it's what we do. So it's not just only money. It's also that emotional part, yeah. behavioral part of it. And the emotions around the priorities and making a <laughs> list of what those are, yes, those priorities. Exactly. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Nice to meet you. Yeah, well, thank, thank you, you so much. This was a pleasure. Gisette Almamar and Elena Macy are certified financial planners and fiduciaries. Almamar with Trailwise in Arvada and Macy from Bloom, that is, Wealth Advisors in Boulder. We'll link to other interviews in our financial literacy series at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. After a break, we'll dip into another college commencement speech. This one delivered by a student at the University of Northern Colorado who was thrown for two big loops. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When a boulder lake was infested with thousands of goldfish, authorities worried they would destroy the ecosystem. All methods of removing them were unpleasant. Then flocks of migrating white pelicans descended upon the lake, gorged on the goldfish, and the problem was over. Spring brings the white pelican to Colorado lakes and reservoirs. It stands four to five feet tall, has a nine-foot wingspan, and a huge orange bill that sports a prominent bump during breeding season. Then there's the pelican's famous large, stretchy pouch it uses as a net to scoop up fish and amphibians. It's a myth that pelicans store food in there. By summertime, you'll find pelicans gathered into squadrons for cooperative fishing. And when Colorado waters freeze over, it's a signal to the pelicans to head for warmer coastal waters. A Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. They don't just fly in big names to deliver commencement speeches. Colleges choose student speakers as well. At the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley this month, Mackenzie Kamor took the podium. She's from Parker, Colorado, and graduates with a bachelor's in chemistry. She says she was just getting comfortable with college life. And then, unexpectedly, as most of us will remember, the world shut down. We were in a global pandemic, and... I was back in my childhood bedroom taking lecture classes over Zoom on my laptop and afternoon walks with my mom around the neighborhood. I will always be grateful for that extra time I got to spend with my family, but it felt like life was moving backwards. So when I returned to campus that fall, despite still spending a lot of time doing lectures virtually, I felt like I could get back to work on that life I was building for myself those months before. 
the same sense of purpose came back to me. And just as life started to feel slightly normal again, on the evening of November 14th, 2020, I found out that I was pregnant and about to become a single mom. There's no way to describe how quickly news like that changes your life. The overwhelming fear and excitement for what life will soon look like. And lingering in the back of my mind through the blur of emotions was my decision to continue my education. Ultimately, I knew I had to finish my degree more than ever before. My son Kyler was born late July of the following year and for the last two years, I have done just that. I've made it to my lectures, my labs, my days in high school classrooms. I have studied, although unconventionally with an infant by my side. I have continued to dance, keeping just a small part of myself in motherhood. I continued to work for that life I wanted for myself and now for my son. I didn't do it alone. I had to lean on family and friends more than I like to admit but I worked hard, and here I am today. I did it. And graduates, you all did too. Your journey probably looked a little different than mine, but you still made it through all of your worst days. You are stronger because of them. We are all leaving UNC as better people inspired and ready to take on whatever challenge the world has ready for us. And believe it or not, I'm not that afraid of the change that is to come. I find excitement in the unknown. My most unexpected plans have been my greatest blessings. Mackenzie Kimore, who just graduated from the University of Northern Colorado. She made the Dean's List several times and now plans to teach high school science. We'll dip into more commencement speeches from around the state in coming days. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News and KRCC.